the guest is Dr. Peter Chin Hong, Associate Dean for Regional Campuses, Medical Director specializing in ID, infectious diseases, particularly diseases in immunocompromised patients. Uh, he directs the Immunocompromised Host Infectious Disease Program at UCSF. He has research focusing on donor-derived infections in transplant recipients, as well as molecular diagnostics of infectious diseases in those with suppressed immune systems. Our laws as it pertains to substances are draconian and bizarre. The psychopaths start this way. He was an alcoholic. Because of social media and pornography, PTSD, love addiction, fentanyl and heroin, ridiculous I'm a, I'm a doctor for sake. Where the hell you think I learned that? I'm just saying, you go to treatment before you kill people. I am a clinician. I observe things about these chemicals. Let's just deal with what's real. We used to get these calls on Loveline all the time. Educate adolescents and to prevent and to treat. If you have trouble, you can't stop and you want to help stop it, I can help. I got a lot to say. I got a lot more to say. I want to give a shout out to our good friends at Blue Mics. If you've heard my voice on this show any time over the past year, including right now, you've been listening to Blue Microphones. And let me tell you, after more than 30 years in broadcasting, I don't think I have ever sounded better. But you don't need to be a pro or have a fancy studio to benefit from a quality mic. You may not realize it, but if you've been working from home or using Zoom to chat with friends, you probably spend a lot of time in front of a microphone. So why not sound your best? Whether you're doing video conferencing, podcasting, recording music, or hosting a talk show, Blue has you covered. From the USB series that plugs right into your computer to XLR professional mics like the mouse or the blueberry we use in the studio right now. Bottom line, there's a Blue microphone to fit your budget and need. I can't say enough about Blue mics, and once you try one, you will never go back. Trust me. To take your audio to the next level, go to drdrew.com blue. That is drdrew.com B-L-U-E. Anyone who's watched me over the years knows that I'm obsessed with Hydrolyte. In my opinion, the best oral rehydration product on the market. I literally use it every day. My family uses it. When I had COVID, I'm telling you, Hydrolyte contributed to my recovery, kept me hydrated. Now, with things finally reopening back around the country, the potential exposure to the common cold is always around. And like always, Hydrolyte has got your back. Hydrolyte Plus Immunity, my new favorite, starts with their fast-absorbing electrolytes and adds a host of great ingredients Plus, each single-serving easy-pour drink mix contains 1,000 milligrams of vitamin C, 300 milligrams of elderberry extract. Hydrolyte Plus Immunity comes in convenient, easy-to-pour sticks that rapidly dissolve in water, make a great-tasting drink, has 75% less sugar than your typical sports drink, it uses all-natural flavors, gluten-free, dairy-free, caffeine-free, non-GMO, and even vegan. Hydrolyte Plus Immunity is also now available in ready-to-drink bottles at the Walmart next to the pharmacy. Or as always, you can find it by visiting hydrolyte.com slash Dr. Drew. Again, that is H-Y-D-R-A-L-Y-T-E dot com slash D-R-D-R-E-W. Be sure to use the code Dr. Drew 25 for a special discount. Dr. Chin Hong, welcome to the program. Thanks so much for having me on, Dr. Drew. Am I am I pronouncing your name correctly? I, I didn't want to screw that up. You pronounce it perfectly. Even my mom okay, would recognize excellent. it. Okay. <laughs> so so I, I'm guessing when you talk about I just want to I want to start with the basics. Uh, when you're when you're talking about your research on donor-derived infections, I'm guessing cytomegalovirus. What else? What else are we looking at that's uh, donor-derived? Also kind of strange things like uh uh, worms, Malaria. like strongaloides, things that we use ivermectin for. Um, 
you know, uh, malaria, uh, you know, all these Chagas disease. So I think a lot of times, you know, when we have donors that donate organs, uh, their immune system is intact. So many chronic diseases they might have been exposed to during childhood that are kept in check. When we suppress the immune system in the recipient after the organs have been transplanted, they kind of come alive, almost like walking dead. So it's our job to kind of adjudicate the donor, make sure it's safe. When it gets in the recipient, we make sure that uh, we institute meds, additional therapeutics that we need to, to kind of anticipate the bad stuff that can happen. How do you deal with Chagas? I, I mean, that's, not, that's not something you typically see in this country. <laughs> Actually, it's more although, common than you think because, yeah. Um, although I would say, given how Hollywood made it seem, it seemed like anybody could get a tsetse fly bite and develop sleeping sickness. But the Chagas is transmitted you know, other ways as well, obviously this way, but go ahead. Yeah, through blood transfusions. So we started, you know, the we in the U.S. we started screening blood products for Chagas disease, and in transplantation, it was really recognized early because uh, when people might have been exposed to Chagas uh, in Central South America, come to this country, or even even if they weren't there and they were uh, exposed to by birth uh, through maternal uh, uh, transmission. Uh, Again, they die in a car accident. Uh, they fortunately donate organs to someone, but then that shagas can come alive in the recipient. So crazy. And strongyloides, for people that don't know, is a worm that comes in through your feet. Again, these are all essentially tropical illnesses, things we don't see here that much. But uh, in terms of things that are here, do, does leptospira and Borrelia and uh, I'm imagining tularemia and all this, everything gets in, I guess, this way. Yeah, everybody can get lots of things. But I think of the things that we most worry about in the U.S. from uh, U.S. transplantation in terms of things that recipients can get, uh, the big three are HIV, hepatitis B and hepatitis C. But we've done a lot of uh, good molecular screening moved away from antibody testing to looking, you know, using PCRs to look for fragments of these viruses and donors so that it makes it safer for recipients. So that those are examples of things that we've really done a lot with. I mean, in California, we worry about coxie from, you know, valley mm -hmm. fever. Uh, a lot of times mm -hmm. people don't know they have it in them, but then uh, we see it in recipients. West Nile virus, Crazy. those are things that we've seen recently. And not CMV, huh? I always think of that as the one that is so, oh, or is that CMV just is like 80% of people have been exposed to CMV. So it is something, I, the reason why I guess I hadn't mentioned it because it's so, um, I think, well worked out and well honed out. And we have good therapy in terms of preventing people from having it rare up later on. But it is still very challenging. Didn't mean to minimize it. I, I I, oh, I, the only reason I bring it up, it's on the uh, MKSAP board reviews for infectious disease. They they make a lot of CMV, but not every year. You know, every, it's an every three year thing. It's weird what they decide to put in the MKSAP. It just depends on who the contributors are. And some, I remember at least two out of the last nine years, CMV like was a big deal. So I assumed it was something you guys were struggling with all the time. No, no, definitely. I mean, yeah, I, I get, somebody must like CMV who writes those questions. True.
<laughs> right, exactly. Just to make the board boards more challenging. Uh, so let's talk a little bit of uh, COVID here and vaccine therapies and whatnot. Um, I, I want to get to vaccine, but before I do, do you have any opinion about some of the antivirals that are coming our way, the molnupiravir and uh, some of the other products that may yet hit market? I am so excited about molnupiravir. First yeah, of all, too. who wouldn't be excited about a yeah. medicine that named that's named after Thor? Um, first, you know, <laughs> it, it, it is kind of a a real great inspiration. But nevertheless, um, it's the first oral agent that's an antiviral that I think is so hopeful. And although the results that we've been seeing and and for which they've submitted FDA approval for is really in the realm of early treatment, similar to monoclonal antibodies. But the real uh, benefit will also be in post-exposure prophylaxis. So somebody in nursing home has COVID, the other people around, they don't have COVID yet. You give them this pill we do with influenza and Tamiflu, and it's likely that it would not progress to COVID. Households, similar thing with post-exposure prophylaxis. Easily available, uh, probably from a drugstore. You just run out and get it. Um, and at least in the trial so far, with early treatment, uh, prevents about fifty percent of people from getting into the hospital within early with within treatment of five days, similar to what we do with Tamiflu, and um, yeah. relatively well tolerated. In fact, people who want placebo. More people discontinue drug on placebo than who actually got uh, molnupiravir. Interesting. And do you worry about medication resistance? Are you worried we're going to need to put combo therapies together? I'm curious. I've not seen much about that. It sort of struck me as curious that people aren't worrying about that. Yes, I mean, I you know, interestingly, with uh, influenza and Tamiflu, we hadn't seen we haven't seen too much resistance, uh, but I think that is always something in the back of our mind, particularly with uh, of when you think about a virus and if you think about the history and story of HIV, you put somebody in one thing for treatment yeah. and then over time it develops yeah. resistance. So, you know, it's something that's yeah. definitely going to be watched out for. And again, molnupiravir is the first gen kind of drug. Roche and Pfizer working other drug oral agents too. And you're right, at the in the future forward, we can imagine combination therapy um, that people might institute at some point uh, as an oral option, and I and I guess it's not you know these are not prolonged therapeutics the way it is for HIV, so there's not so much time for the virus to develop a resistance pattern. So that may be why it's not a prominent in people's thinking right now. Um, the other thing, I, a question I had is I want you to address a, a sort of rumor that's flying around out there which is that vaccines can accelerate drug resistance through putting uh, evolutionary pressures on the virus. Address why that does not happen. And and by the way, he, he embedded, it seems to me, in that story is this notion that the present mRNA therapies uh, are therapeutic rather than vaccine. I, I think of vaccine as anything that prophylactically activates the immune system to prevent an infection. That's a vaccine therapy. Um, but what about the evolutionary pressures caused by vaccine versus therapeutics? Well, first of all, um, just the idea of a vaccine being preventive, as you said, there's nothing there there. So like uh, the traditional way we think about resistance on an individual probably won't happen because again, there's no virus mutating because you're preventing the virus from getting there in the first place. 
from a population perspective, which is what you're getting to, could it be that vaccines will somehow um, lead to people, uh, lead to the virus mutating in a way that it's going to evade the vaccine? I don't think that's going to be true. Uh, so far, if you were a virus and you had a superpower that you could hold on to, and so far viruses, SARS-CoV-2 seems to hang on to one superpower, and the superpowers you have in your menu include, are you going to be more transmissible, be more vaccine resistant, or are you going to cause people to get sicker? It turns out that the one that survives the most, the one that seems to be viruses or SARS-CoV-2 variants that prize transmissibility, the one vaccine resistance and the ones that we know about so far, like beta in um, in South Africa or gamma in Brazil, they tend to not proliferate as much as Delta has overtaken our landscape. So, you know, I don't think that the vaccine resistant types will emerge. And I don't think that vaccines would lead to um, the rise of the mutants, so to speak. Yeah, so that doesn't keep you up at night so much. That's what I worry about is some sort of, I don't, I don't believe the argument that's increased evolutionary pressures on the virus for the, for the very reason the way you set it up, which is there's no virus there getting pressured. It, does, it doesn't, it's not, that's not how it works. It's when it's under pressure is when it, and when it evolves in a certain direction and that's therapeutics. I do worry about that. I worry about, but then again, it's not about the infectivity. It's about surviving the therapeutic. It's about getting around the therapeutic, uh, which is a superpower, right? I mean, that's what infective agents have as a superpower, another one or a sub superpower. So, and there's a there's a sub couple of sub deltas out there that are maybe a little more mm -hmm. infectious. Why don't those take over? That's an interesting question, but I also think it's something we don't fully know yet. I mean, many people have blamed the rise of the recent surge in the UK based on a sub-lineage of Delta. Um, you know, we've heard about Delta Plus before, but it's like one of those Delta Pluses. And, um, you know, it, it could be that that's just the strain that's prevalent in a particular region and doesn't have extra transmissibility or vaccine resistance. But as we increase and open our borders more to international travel, inclu including people from the UK, where this uh, sub-lineage is more common, uh, it will be interesting to see whether or not it takes over the landscape. But the good news for these um, variants of Delta so far is the parent is Delta. It's still vaccine sensitive. Uh, it's still monoclonal antibody sensitive. Even if it takes over, it's really predominantly in people who are still more susceptible, meaning they're not, they don't have an immunity either from natural infection or from vaccines. And it's not really going to take over uh, the body of somebody who's been vaccinated, so to speak. Excellent. So I want to ask some specific uh, vaccine type questions. Um, I'm starting to wonder, much like the HPV vaccine, if we shouldn't be thinking about the Pfizer vaccine as a three vaccine series. One, two, six months later, three. That, that's a vaccine series. That's not a booster. Is that is that what's likely to happen with Pfizer, or is it going to be a, an ongoing booster relationship with the host? So, like every infectious disease doctor, I, my answer is it depends. But I think the first uh, possibility, what you mentioned, is my prediction, 
I think there are many, many vaccines, as you pointed out, uh, Drew, that are given in threes, uh, measles, mumps, and rubella, uh, human papillomavirus, and hepatitis B vaccines. And if you look back retrospectively at what happened with Pfizer and Moderna, they were really concentrating on the one-two hit within a month. And if you look at some of the other vaccines we normally give, you kind of have to give the immune system a little bit rest and then remind it several months later. And that boost is really what takes us across the finish line many years, more than you know, six months is what people uh, are worried about. You know, maybe the boost will only last six months, but personally looking at the experience of other vaccines, uh, it probably will last years. But the caveat is if there is some super variant that's vaccine resistant um, or appreciably looking so different that the vaccine antibodies don't recognize them, we may need a reminder, not for our immune system from the original variant, but because it looks so different. But I think overall, I think that the one, two, wait several months, number three, will probably last much longer than just six months or, you know, it's not going to be an every year thing unless we, do, we have a scary new variant. Got it. Got it. So what about natural immunity? I, I, I'm finding the landscape a little confusing with that. We, we have gone from ignoring it to saying it's 27 times greater to saying the vaccine is five times greater. That It's all over the place. And they look like stupid headlines to me that make almost no sense. Um, I, I'm guessing, well, I, I've, I've done a sort of a full antibody, not, not really a widely commercially available antibody profile myself. So I'm, I'm an N of one. I'm an anecdote. And as an N of one, I have had sustained nuclear capsid antibodies, spike pro everything. I my my antibodies have been way way up, including neutralizing antibodies have been have remained way up, which has been very reassuring. I couldn't move about without getting the vaccine, so I got the Johnson and Johnson vaccine just so I could move around and show my vaccine, you know, card. Um, but I didn't think I needed it. And it, it did boost, particularly, of course, my spike protein. And some of my neutralizing antibodies went up a little bit too, which was interesting. Um, and I, just to flush my story out, people have heard me tell this story, which is I woke up day two after the Johnson & Johnson vaccine with a spontaneous raccoon's eye on the, on the right, uh, which is the presenting feature of transverse sinus thrombosis which freaked me the hell out. Had a black eye. I, I had no headache. I had no vision problems. I had just a spontaneous raccoons. And I thought, looking in the mirror going, really? I, I'm going to be the only male with the transverse <laughs> sinus thrombosis? That's what's going to happen here? No, I had to go put the dog in the cage. Sorry, Drew. But, no, that's fine. But that's I, fine. did you guys talk about switching vaccines? We're, that we're getting into. That's, okay, what, that's right. what I'm heading towards. Um, so, so with that background, natural immunity, weird reactions to J&J, &J, before I ask you, should I switch vaccines? What about taking a second Johnson & Johnson vaccine and completing that vaccine series? Should I do that? Or, or is it an unnecessary medical procedure? That's a great question, uh, Dr. Drew. I think to answer that question, let's go back and first talk about natural immunity by itself. Um, I, I love natural immunity. You ask any infectious disease doctor, they love the idea that um, you know, many times when you get a pathogen naturally, you get a really robust immune system. The problem is mm -hmm. this is a shape shift of a virus and we don't know what the enemy coming up next is. And it turns out that uh, natural immunity by itself in the history of COVID hasn't been 
that great in the long hauls. In other words, the people in Manaus in Brazil, they got hit hard first, and then they got hit hard again by the Brazilian variant, which is gamma. So that's like the natural experiment. And then we have the state of Kentucky where people were cataloged who got infected in 2020. And lo and behold, they got cataloged again in 2021. They had the same people, everybody in the database. If you go vaccinated, you were twice less likely to get Delta as somebody who was unvaccinated. So first of all, you could get reinfected if you were infected naturally. And if you were gotten the vaccine based on the new variant, but it turns out you are much less likely to get reinfected, at least from that data, uh, if you uh, were vaccinated. Well, let's, let's hang on. And then that, lastly, oh, wait, hold on before you keep going to the last thing, be because that may be that may be an expression of the variance of the antibody response. In that, my understanding, it 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 clusters into three groups, right? Rapid fall off in antibody, mildly, mm -hmm. you know, six months drop off, and sustained antibody response. So the reinfect reinfection might have just just been in the lower sixty percent group, right? Correct, but we can't really predict who is going to get who has unless you do okay. all the. Well, we could, things. we could, yeah. we we could develop technologies that could do that, right? But we've just said vaccine everybody, as opposed. So I've been watching myself, and and I'm trying to be a little more sophisticated about it and take the vaccine when it's warranted. But we could do it. We just haven't yet standardized how to identify immunity, right? Correct. So therein lies the difference between like a public health population intervention and an individual intervention, which I think we have the technology for. We can like phenotype your T cells. I can tell you what your T cell response is. Yeah. I can like yeah. biopsy yeah. your bone marrow and your lymph nodes and yeah. tell you what immune <laughs> cells are there. You wouldn't like it. True. You probably wouldn't like it. No. Uh, you would like hate it more no. than your raccoon size. But I mean, it is something that I can do. <laughs> <laughs> no, I totally understand. <laughs> That's a very funny response. I just um, think you should take the Pfizer. Well, all right. So, so you were gonna. Yeah, I, I interrupted your your talk about natural immunity. You said, lastly, you were about to complete that thought. Oh yeah. <laughs> lastly, I think when you look at the biology, it is actually quite fascinating because people who got infected naturally have a very long lasting uh, immunity. When you look, you know, more than twelve months so far in in these various tissues I talked about. The holy grail actually is neither vaccine, probably natural immunity, it's the hybrid immunity, which you have. So I think those responses, which is called hybrid immunity, vaccine plus natural, ends up giving you the best of all because, you know, we look at all these antibodies, but, you know, the T cell repertoire is probably going to be much greater with hybrid immunity. It's just hard to figure out on a policy level how we can determine this person has that, this person has that, they don't need it. But for you personally, you're probably okay. But, you know, to give you the benefit of doubt, say you didn't have COVID before, I would follow up a J&J probably with an mRNA vaccine, um, you know, given, you know, we can talk about the NIH study, even though there's not clinical outcomes. But I think the robust antibody response in that and the easy availability of mRNA vaccines as a booster would probably be my recommendation, just like Sue said. Okay. Okay. All right. I, I want to dig into that a, a, a little bit deeper. Um, but first, I want to talk about hybrid immunity. And that is 
quietly under people's breath, and I've even saw it on the CDC website for about five minutes and they took it down. There's sort of a, well, we're not really saying this out loud, but really we think everybody eventually is going to have to have hybrid immunity. Is that true? Is that really, the, that's the long ball. That's the, the long game, right? Which is get mild illness, treat it with molnupiravir, well, get mild illness because you're vaccinated, get yeah. the hybrid immunity and get a short illness because you treat it with molnupiravir. That's what we're, the world's going to look like in a year or two, No. I think so. I mean, some pundits say that uh, COVID is going to march around the world until it's touched everyone at least once. I mean, it may look very different, like you pointed out. That's the, a very benign look that I think people will be fine. You, you wake up, you're vaccinated, you have a cold, uh, you, you go to the pharmacy, you get your malnupiravir that you have prescribed, you take it within five days, you have reduced symptoms, um, you can go back to work. And then you have the superpower of hybrid immunity that will probably take you on through and then COVID will go away in the world. Well, it will be minimized. Or, or, yeah. Probably won't go away. Yeah, minimized. Right. That's what I think. I think that's what we're going to have to aim for. I, I really do. And it's and, it, and the fact this world where it's zero COVID, zero COVID is just like an insanely maladaptive, inappropriate goal. It should be, it should be hybrid immunity, mild illness. Let's get on with this. <laughs> yeah, I mean, I mean, the experiments of Australia, New Zealand, even Singapore, I mean, they all failed. And it's really surprising to me that China is still trying to go for zero COVID. I think it will fail, um, but, you know, we can see what will happen. I, but, our, but my question really was, uh, you, you've confirmed my opinion, but my question really was, are people saying this out loud in, in important circles where people are thinking about these things? People are starting to talk about it. Um, I think the reason why it's been quiet and hush-hush is because people don't want to put all the eggs in the natural immunity basket. Uh, and I think there's a fear that by exposing the power of natural immunity that it may deter people from getting vaccinations. But like we were both saying, it's the combination of both that probably is the holy grail. And and I think personally, vaccines is more reliable, standardized. So I, I'd probably get a vaccine first for sure. And I wouldn't like risk getting natural COVID um, first. That's all. And and the hybrid immunity of vaccine then infection is the same as the hybrid immunity from infection then vaccine. Uh, probably, but probably. there is a riskier enterprise by getting the natural infection right. first. No long COVID. Clear, all of that of course, of course, of course, clearly. And and everybody, if you're going to do the risky way, have the monoclonal antibodies and steroids ready to hand. I, I think the steroid story, I don't know how you feel about this, but I, I think the steroid story is more powerful than we really have figured out yet. Because when, when people that do well, I, I, early on in the infection, I inadvertently treated somebody with steroids thinking she was having just an exacerbation of COPD. And she did really well and really should not have because um, she was all set up for bad trouble. Um, so I, I, I've been watching that and I, I think that's more of a thing than we yet know. You agree? Yeah, totally. I mean, if you look at, there are some other sort of anecdotes or data that's interesting to indirectly. So in my own 
peeps, the immunocompromised patients, we expected them to do really, really poorly with COVID, but actually it didn't. And because a lot of them are already on anti-inflammatories, and the same is with people with um, some immunologic, uh, rheumatologic diseases, they ended up not doing as bad as we thought because probably their anti-inflammatories like steroids modulated their response. Because if you, know, if you remember, of course, there's the viral phase, the virus making more of itself, and then the body gets angry by making the inflammation and it's the inflammation and the immune response that kills you. So if you're like set up shop where your immune system is meant to be very sluggish, it sure increases your susceptibility to get infected. But if you, your body doesn't get ever super angry to really cause you to, to do poorly and go to the ICU and all of that stuff. Yeah, uh, I, I've seen more enthusiasm for the JK inhibitors lately. Should we be using those early? I think it's it's hard to say. I mean, I think some of the other anti-inflammatory drugs like tocilizumab and baricitinib, they haven't really panned out in the data as well. Uh, and they only have panned out really for sub sub uh, segments of, this, of pe people. So in other words, somebody who's about to go to the ICU, but they're not really on events. You might think about one of the them somebody early mechanical ventilation might get another one, but you're right, you know, but you know, who knows if they would have uh, done well, better in earlier disease, but so far the, the studies haven't looked at that huge, that population hasn't been as huge in the early disease part for those other anti-inflammatories, but yeah. steroids are cheap. They're like $7 a pop uh, versus oh, like, yeah. you know, one to $2,000. Yeah, yeah. I, I am, though, hearing some more, more enthusiasm for baricitinib. I, I mean, toxiluzumab is already in clinical pathways in some hospitals, but you know, baricitinib keeps coming up in when I talk to people, but may or may not be real. Who, who knows? Um, Jake, junior kindergarten, they're saying, Sean is saying it's JK, junior kindergarten. <laughs> no, it's, uh, it's the cytokine storm inhibitor. It's the bar baricitinib. Um, we get right. censored this week if you're on YouTube. We'll see you over on Rumble. We're using a lot of big words here today. But well, okay. now that we're not using the... the I know, the, I was uh, surprised how many big words we're using. <laughs> well, we're not, we're not using the forbidden words. I mean, you can't, we can't... Well, we, so, I was talking to a guy from uh, Cleveland Clinic last week, and he mentioned the use of hydroxychloroquine early before anybody had any, knew what was going on. And I, and I had to say, I said, well, are we allowed to say that now that doctors were doing that? Can we say that out loud without being canceled for God's sakes? And I guess we have, we, now we can say that we still can't use the, you use the word to treat, um, strongyloides. We're not allowed to say that word on YouTube. Do you know that? Oh, no, I didn't. <laughs> but we can, you're use not it allowed to say I, it's, I look, it's an anti-hell mens that every refugee yeah. from a foreign country who comes to this country has to take. The CDC has it on their website. They must take it for five days after entry into the country if you're a, a refugee. But you're not allowed but to say it on I YouTube. Was giving a, what if I was giving a lecture just, on strongloidy? I know. Well, you can't do it on YouTube. That, that's, that's the insanity. You, the, the AI will kick you out, and then when you try to make an appeal... They're idiots and don't understand what you're asking them. And so they, you just you just go, just don't do it again is sort of their response. It's really bad. It's really bad. I've had... Go ahead. Well, I, I was just going to say, what if I wanted to treat drug-resistant lice or Norwegian scabies? Then I would also be limited. You, you, you can't say the word. 
What, what if I want to treat lupus with the HC drug? Well, you can say hydroxychloroquine now. That one, all of a sudden, you can say right. again. Yeah, because we said it with the- Not the, the, here. All right, well, not the two together in any not event. Not now. But, but, but if I want to say, you know, I want to keep my lupus patient on hydroxychloroquine during pregnancy because it's so inert and safe, now I can say that. But uh, six There's months ago, I couldn't say that. Say. This is the insanity we're into these days. Anyway, I want to get to the switching from J&J &J to uh, mRNA vaccine. There was some pretty good data on J&J uh, and as, a, as showing very powerful response in the naturally immune patient. I felt pretty good that I took J&J, &J. But, but in spite of that data, that was after the one vaccine, but in spite of that data, you still say switch over to mRNA. Why such enthusiasm to switch from J&J &J to mRNA? Well, I'm not, I wouldn't say that I'm I, you know, wildly enthusiastic, but uh, if I had a, you know, if I had a choice, um, and I'm really, again, thinking about maximizing the immune response. Uh, first of all, J&J, &J, Team J&J &J has always had been neglected a little bit, mainly because we didn't have enough, you know, population to have robust data to make some recommendations about. Um, and I think they were always number three in the metals count. It was an outreach vaccine originally conceptualized. Many people thought J and J should have been a two-dose vaccine, just like AstraZeneca, uh, another you know, the now, other really. virus vector. <laughs> yeah. So now it's back to two, and then you know I think that you know that's kind of where we're coming from. Um, there have been a little bit more uh, you know, issues with clots with J and J, um, but again, that's not a, limiting my enthusiasm. And I think with all things being equal. Um, you know, I think what's swinging many people into the mRNA camp is mainly the small study, although small and not clinical outcomes, done by the NIH, where they looked at nine groups of people. And if you had J&J, &J, Pfizer, Moderna, you, you got one of the other two as a mix and match strategy. Turns out when you had J&J &J followed by J&J, &J, you had a response that was like four times. If you had J&J &J followed by uh, Pfizer, it's like 32 times immune response several weeks later. If you had J&J &J followed by Moderna, you had like 76 times response. Sure, it's not like, uh, you know, fewer people going to the hospital or having symptomatic infection, but it was really kind of where things were going. At the end of the day, I'm not really saying use this or use that, but maybe the mRNA vaccines are definitely more common. You call up any Walgreens, you probably have to go hunting to find one that has J&J. &J. Like a zillion of them will have either Pfizer or Moderna. So that's what I'm saying. If it's convenient, it's flexible, it's safe. Um, and I wouldn't necessarily rush to get a J&J just because I had a J&J. I, I, I like the idea of- Although they have good times, things with uh, J&J too. Such as? They have good things about J&J. Um, what they've been, the small study that people don't really talk about a lot, but when you look at, although it's like the bronze medalist in the Olympics of vaccines and Operation Warp Speed, the, the, um, when you look over six months, when you do get an immune response, it doesn't really seem to waver over the six months versus Pfizer. Moderna also a little bit less steep than Pfizer in terms of decline. But J&J &J is like swimming along at six, week, six months, which is kind of interesting, I think. And the reason why, you know, I think when he did get protection from J&J, &J, it was a little bit more durable. And it was that was kind of an interesting... Feel. And also, it's a gift that keeps on giving. So the more you check 
antibody levels after a second shot in the GNJ booster studies, the antibody response keeps on getting better. So it's like fine wine. You check it at four weeks, two weeks is this, then it's several fold higher at eight weeks, and then it just keeps on going up. I'm inclined to get another J&J, I got to tell you. I, I, I am. What, what do we think the mechanism is of the clotting? Do we, it's, the, it's the PF4, right? System? Yeah, so it's a PF4. It's, it's similar. Yeah, it's basically... Yeah, I, I'm not that expert in the clotting associated with uh, J&J and, and that particular adenovirus vector vaccine, but it basically, um, you know, stimulates the... You know, something similar to a clotting feature we see in people who get seriously ill with sepsis or infection in blood where you have this, you know, uh, clotting and unclotting and using up of factors, but then you should have thinner blood, but then you're, you overclot. So that's essentially the, the path of fizz. Do you think, I, I've been thinking about that. That's a good way of describing it, by the way. And, and I've been thinking about it. And I've been trying to decide, is aspirin therapy an appropriate thing going if somebody's worried about J&J reaction? Because bleeding is one of the problems with J&J as well. So what do you think? I think if you are eligible to take aspirin for prophylaxis, I don't think it will hurt, uh, but not a, like a therapeutic dose of aspirin for a therapeutic uh, blood thinning or anticoagulation. But say you're eligible to take an aspirin, why not? Um, just, if it makes you take like the aspirin, aspirin for other reasons. Yeah, yeah. a baby aspirin, yeah. 81 milligrams. Then, yeah. So, but again, children there's no data around that. Where are you and in, in children? I know we just today, the FDA approved, or at least provisionally approved, 5 to 12. What, what are your thoughts? I I, I think the the... I support uh, giving kids 5 to 11 vaccines for a few reasons. Mandating? Um, the first is, uh, sorry? Mandating? No, um, well, I think that eventually, you know, with enough notice, mandating, not mandating it now, I think it has to have full FDA approval. I think we have to have enough experience in the population. And then I think a mandate in the future would not be out of realm. Um, it's kind of, early to say for sure what the experience in the population would be. I'm very optimistic. It's one third the dose. We already see fewer chills and fewer fevers in the trial of 2200, although small, compared to the full dose in older adolescents and young adults. So I'm hopeful that we won't see any uh, untoward effects. Most of the bad stuff with vaccines, when you look back at development of kid vaccines, happened in the first two months, and we haven't seen anything here yet. Um, so far. So, you know, I'm, I'm holding on hope and, and I don't think that I'll, I'll be wrong in this situation. Discuss, if you can, uh, people who are nervous about how drug companies report their data for vaccine research and therapies, as well as how somebody like you and I look at things like the VAERS system and other reporting system once there's widespread distribution of a vaccine. Because I, I will just say that, that non-clinical people don't understand what we see. When there's trouble, we see it. It's obvious. We start seeing it right away. It comes in. Um, but help people understand they're, if they're worried about, first of all, the drug company distorting data or something, the VAERS system under-reporting or not being watched or not being made 
prominent and what it means to, you know, why physicians know when things are in trouble. <laughs> Those are sort of three topics. Go ahead, see if you can make something of that. Yeah, <laughs> that's a complex uh, three-part question, Drew. I'd probably be, be uh, sort of like puzzling over that on the exam if I had to. But let's take the first one, uh, drug trials. Mm -hmm. They are, you know, they are very, very, very controlled. It's control is the second letter in a three-word randomized control trial, RCT. So control also means that people are like doting over these people in trials. So when you get a side effect, you have to describe it as an investigator, as it likely, unlikely, you know, and then you, you put all those things down. Uh, there's a category of serious adverse effect that would probably drive someone to the hospital. So these are all cataloged. But the problem with drug trials in general is that, um, you know, maybe it's inherently biased because a company is running the ship. Um, but again, the, the company wants something that will work out for them in the long haul, which is to try to be as responsible as possible. Maybe I'm being naive in that sense. But again, if you want to maximize profits, you don't want to like fudge data because it's not good for the long haul. It's maybe good for the first six months before people figure you out. But again, you probably want to do things right. We've That's how we've approved lots of drugs. The second thing is once it's out, then people start using it in real life and they report it to VERS. And I think the story of J&J &J is probably a good illustration of what happened. So, um, or, yeah, so people start getting things. Um, so this thing, uh, blood clot in the cavernous venous sinus system, or CVS or CSV, depending on how you say it, people started noticing that it wasn't in the trials. So what they did in the US was they saw it in Europe coming, was kind of like the storm coming over um, with AstraZeneca. And then with J&J, we started seeing that in younger women. So what they did was, first of all, they went to the various system. There might've been a signal there. And what they did was pause. So Pausing does a few things. It, we think pausing means people don't run out and get it, but it also alerts clinicians to say, retrospectively look at the patients who they've seen and, and maybe say, hey, I saw that person with a clot. Did they get a vaccine then? Because I might've thought the clot was due to something else. So that pausing allows that to happen. And then they go back to the data and refine it. But it, you know, it is as good as, as you know, it could be, but it's not a precise science because lots of people can get things in real life and coincident with getting the vaccine. As you know, you know it's hard to necessarily ascribe um, causation. So then you look at other things like, you know, what's the risk benefit and all these kinds of things. Um, you can get more clotting, several fold higher with COVID than with the vaccine, and these are all things that go into the final population level recommendation, which may be different from an individual patient in front of you. Yeah, th that's, that's, I think, is the point, is that, is that we, the practitioners start to see this stuff, and then it gets correlated with population data, and that's how we, I mean, there's, it, it's, it's, it's almost uncanny to me how quickly information passes in our profession. I mean, very quickly, people are alerting each other what's going on. I mean, I, I had never heard of something called cytokine storm. And uh, five days into the sort of this thing hitting the country, I was discussing that with my peers or something we were calling cytokine storm. And in that in that five days, 
how we look at inflammation in an ICU setting changed completely right then, boom. And something we learned about this illness was shared throughout the country, which was nice. But at the same time, some super uncanny things happened, such as we kind of froze in place and became afraid to think for ourselves. I, I want to talk to you about that. But more importantly, I want to talk about something that's happening now is why why isn't every physician aware of the monoclonal antibody therapeutics? It's so bizarre to me that it's just uncanny to me that people aren't aware of that. But I have to take a quick break and, and we'll come back and we'll discuss those topics. I see you shaking your head and you're as incredulous as I am, but I hope you have some hypothesis as to why this happened. It's really kind of weird to me. I, I received monoclonal antibodies last December. You know, we're talking a year ago and it kept me out of the hospital. One of the things that I... I immediately did was went out on social media trying to educate people because I was shocked that public the public health officials weren't educating the public about how to stay out of the hospital. They were, stay home, stay home. Uh, no, if you get sick, find, find a physician, use telemedicine, get the monoclonal antibodies, stay out of the hospital, talk to your doctor about steroids. There's a lot we can do. They did none of that ever. And I, I, to me, this is all an astonishing part of the story of the COVID pandemic. So we'll talk about that. I'll get your thoughts on it in just about three minutes. Be right back. Here with my daughter, Paulina, to share an exciting new project. Over the years, we've talked to a ton of young people about what they really want to know about relationships. It's difficult to know who you are and what you want, especially mm. as a teenager. And not everyone has access to an expert in their house like I did. Of course, it wasn't like I was always that receptive to that advice. Right, no kidding. But now we have written the book on consent. It is called It Doesn't Have to Be Awkward, and it explores relationships, romantic relationships, and sex. It's a great guide for teens, parents, and educators to go beyond the talk and have honest and meaningful conversations. It Doesn't Have to Be Awkward will be on sale September 21st. You can order your book anywhere books are sold. Mm -hmm. Amazon, Barnes & Noble, Target, and of course, your independent local bookstore. Links are available on drdrew.com. So pre-ordering the book will help people, well, raise awareness, obviously, and it'll get that conversation going early so more people can can notice this and spread the word of positivity about healthy relationships. So if you can, we would love your support by pre-ordering now. Totally. And as we said before, this is a book that both teenagers and their parents should read. Read the book, have the conversation. It doesn't have to be awkward. On sale, September 21st. We are here with uh, Dr. Peter Chin Hong. He is a medical educator at UC San Francisco Medical School, where he is a dean as well. And we were discussing before the break the incredulity that he and I both have at the fact that our peers seem to be uh, unknowledgeable about the one of the one of the and steroids too to some extent they seem reluctant to use that, but certainly the MABs. I, I'm shocked. What, what is your understanding of how that happened and why that is the case? Well. <laughs> When you were mentioning or introducing the topic, the only thing that was popping into my head was demonic possession, because I, that's the only reason why somebody <laughs> shouldn't know about this medicine. Uh, it is, like you said, it's like one of the like truly evidence-based therapies that we have for early disease. There's actually more evidence for monoclonal antibodies, and the evidence is better than for things like remdesivir, where there's no you know, the p-values are only in a subgroup of populations and we you put a lot of stock in remdesivir. So, you know, I think like steroids, there's more, you know, there's a lot of uh, statistically significant benefit and we haven't used it. Uh, it's free. The government spent more than $3 billion pre-buying a lot of monoclonal antibodies. It's effective against Delta. 
And we've only used about 50% of the supply, which is weird considering that 700,000 people have died in this country from COVID uh, and could have benefited from monoclonal antibodies. If, if you look at the history, we've had an emergency use authorization since uh, late, you know, last year uh, for one of the products and then two more subsequently this year. So, you know, it is mystifying. I think when I step back and I think about, you know, as an educator, why this block is there, I I can only think it's information overload and then there are so many permutations and combinations. But again, of all the therapies we talked about, you know, there are few that rise to the top of what is really evidence-based and monoclonal antibodies is among them. So I'm not sure why it's not getting played, but I know, you know, it may be resources, the siloing between outpatient and inpatient. I think it's easier to medicalize and treat a lot of people with things once you get into the hospital. But if you're on the outpatient, it's almost like the Wild West or you kind of have to go through the desert or you're, you're Mad Max on a motorbike and you're trying to find the monoclonal antibodies because it's not easy to find and people don't know about it. So long dive and I think to say that I'm not I, sure. I get you. And I think it varies state by state. I talked to somebody in Florida this morning who had was middle-aged, mild COVID, found it, went, got it, and they gave it to the wife for exposure prophylaxis. Really? Yeah, and I, I was like, amazing. this is, is fantastic. It's fantastic, yeah. right? Yeah. And that's Florida. That's Florida. Well, Florida democratized getting monoclonal antibodies by having patients self-attest, um, whereas it's kind of locked in many other areas and states. So patients self-attest. And the other way they dealt with it in Florida is they had it at churches and theaters and community centers, mm -hmm. like you, the person called you, you can kind of go and get it. And they, it's not like they're not using evidence, but uh, it is both for treatment of early disease and for post-exposure prophylaxis. And it's available yeah. because the government bought out a lot of it. So, And, and people, the, the public thinks it's expensive and not for me. It's for special people. Wrong. It's for everybody. Your, government, your tax dollars already bought it, number one. And then the doctors, this is the more interesting part of the story for you and me, have been weirdly frozen in place since the beginning of the pandemic. And it's been the weirdest thing I've ever seen. And I think that some of it is that more of our peers are employees than we realize. And they're sort of stuck with whatever the system is telling them rather than allowing them to practice medicine, I suspect. Also, they became fearful of the social media and the mob and, you know, being looked and getting their license encumbered for God knows what. Uh, I, I feel like there was a panic amongst physicians in addition to being encumbered by being an employee. I mean, that could be it because there is, um, again, there's been a lot of barriers to giving it in hospital systems. That's why it really has to be embraced either by another body, like a political body or public health body that's higher than a system. And, or uh, it has, or the system has to believe in it uh, Mayo Clinic believed in it, so they like were able to give, you know, which is huge for a system. It doesn't sound like a lot, like something like 280 uh, treatments a week. Um, I mean, I think uh, there's uh, Oshner in Louisiana. During the Louisiana surge, was able to get up to over a thousand patients a week, uh, which sounds respectable. But again, if you think about your average academic medical center, 
you feel great when you're able to give 30 people a week. Um, because again, the outpatient versus inpatient silo is real. You kind of have to have nurses, you have to have you people worried about infection because even the Uber to get there, you know, you know, you can't get an Uber, somebody has to bring you there because people are worried about getting infected. Because again, it's the difference between outpatient and inpatient. People have to observe you after getting the, the monoclonal antibody, which isn't necessarily a barrier. People have been trying to get around that by giving uh, injections and in drive-through clinics at homes. I think, uh, but I think the case of Florida is, um, you know, an instructive one because they, again, made it for the people and kind of disseminated broadly, mm -hmm. whereas otherwise it's kind of like a secret message and you kind of have to have the password to know about it. Right, right. I, I got it as a, from an infusion nurse in my home. And that's what was provided through Caremark at the time, uh, which was great, which is absolutely standard care. And it should be the standard care, but God knows why it's not. <laughs> but um, yeah, I, there, there's so many. Well, ha, do you, as you look back on the on the uh, pandemic, are, are there lessons to be learned that you are sort of are thinking about? Yes, I mean, I think there are a lot of lessons to be learned. Um, I think one of the, the lessons uh, that I learned was something you mentioned, Drew, which was that, um, you know, the way we as healthcare providers get information, um, you know, not, you know, I think early on in the pandemic, we were all learning together. So uh, I think social media was very powerful um, then by people sharing how we took care of patients, how we developed guidelines without, uh, as you know, somebody giving you a nice flow chart before we were mm -hmm. building the plane as we flew it. And then what happens is that's the clinical thing. And then there are all these therapeutics that get introduced in rapid succession throughout. And not only do we have to learn the therapeutics, we have to prioritize them and then we have to readjust our schemas. So that and, and reaching out to a community was probably the first lesson that was very remarkable during this time. We couldn't have done it in 1918 when it, we had the influenza uh, Spanish flu because nobody we couldn't share information that way. So it was remarkable. The number two thing I think I probably learned, uh, lessons learned is that, um, you know, I think, you know, it's it's been, this has really been a political disease and, you know, I think it's mystifying, but then you, you know, one can say that was a naive view as a healthcare provider where, you know, we use masks so often in the hospital um, for lots of things. And as infectious disease doctor, we use masks a lot of times for TB and all these other reasons. So I think the politicization was kind of difficult for me to swallow uh, because I, again, I was just thinking health systems and healthcare and what's the evidence. And in this setting, I want to use this uh, versus like thinking about what people thought it meant from a, political perspective. So that was a little bit sad to me. And then number three was again, you know, a lot of times we, you know, we have to like, and then this is kind of like the 2021 thing, looking globally, um, not because we necessarily have to think only about equity, but we can use patterns around the world to help predict what is coming. So Delta is a case in point, we saw Delta actually coming like a storm before it hit the US. And I think we didn't look outside uh, with that clarity to see it go from India to the UK and then to the US. So we could have probably done a little bit more preparation and anticipation 
again, prevention and then hindsight is always 2020. So those are just some of the lessons um, we learned. I mean, I, I learned that I love, I really prioritize hugging and I never thought I would miss hugging as much as I did. And I learned to make a lot of banana bread, but those are the silver linings from the, <laughs> from the pandemic. <laughs> Uh, and, and yeah, I mean, mRNA therapies and molnupiravir and uh, lots of interesting uh, Zoom and, you know, sort of technological uh, advances in terms of how we care for patients <laughs> through electronic media. But 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 totally. you, you sort of hinted at the mask thing. Um, yeah, um, to me that we shouldn't let panic dictate public health policy. The fact that to, to me, the, the, the highest level of incompetence was public health officials not allowing people to lie down on the beach. You could go on the beach, but you couldn't put a towel down. That's disgusting incompetence, and it should be called out as such. It is frank incompetence. And that was a gigantic error, and they should call it out. Uh, and they should have been encouraging us to go out on the beach and going to the parks where it's where this thing doesn't transmit. And um, and you mentioned masks. What, what do we do with mask uh, data? Do you make anything of the Danish study or the Bangladesh study? I mean, I, I just, you know, they are all, you can examine these studies uh, from, from you know, closely and then kind of looking for flaws or not for flaws. Is it generalizable to where I'm at? Like every study, like uh, every study, though. We mask, do that with every study. Like 50%, yeah, yeah. people wear the mask a ton or do they kind of half wear it? Uh, but at the end of the day, the way I think about masks is the way I think about it in, in medicine. It's not like, the be all and end all is not going to prevent you like a like a force field, but it is something that's easy to wear and I'll slap it on if I feel like it, but I'm not going to put all my eggs in the mask basket. Um, so that's the way that I overall feel about masks. It's kind of like the icing on the cake, but it's not the core way in which, you know, because I have yeah. these other things yeah. now to protect Yeah, me. that's but that's kind of the way I think of it. I think of it too, which is, uh, Danish studies, so it didn't. Neither the Bangladesh or the dangerous Danish studies really didn't show zero effect. It, it's it's it showed some effect, and if we want to have some effect, well, you can wear these things. But to pretend as though you're killing grandma if you don't wear a mask, well, that's insane. Now we're insane again. Now we're lying, preventing people from going to the beach again. This is this is this is the back to the panicsville, and that's the part I've objected to so much. This whole thing, and uh, the other thing is I, I've learned about pu public health the way we distribute public health uh, authority. I mean, we, we gave it to a sociologist and non-clinicians were making major decisions that had huge risk reward uh, concerns that were not taken into account at all. And now we have those concerns coming to bear, i.e. mental health consequences, et cetera. And that, that to me was just troubling, just deeply troubling. I think what you're getting to, Drew, is the whole idea of how we might change, put science onto a po policy landscape or into the society, which is, you know, I was on left, right, and center with Josh um, a few weeks ago, and I think he put it most eloquently when he said, um, you know, scientists can give the science, but it's up to society to use values to translate that science into what people want to do. So I think, you know, at the end of the day, speaking to your sociologist comment, you know, that is what um, I think you know that's how the dust settles. I I heard did I, I heard Vinay Prasad say almost that exact same phrase about uh, science being 
you know, just being a what was what say it again? What was the phrase you used? The science having a value to it, or yeah, science gives you know it's a guide, but then society has values in which yeah. you can interpret the science and and then put yeah, it into yeah. what society yeah. wants. Yeah, yeah. The, the science needs to be interpreted within the, within the context of the values of the culture, I guess, is what... what, what Somebody uh, on YouTube named Charlie yeah. Pritt said, I'm so embarrassed that I caved in and listened to my wife and left the mail outside for two hours before bringing it inside. Well, that was that was during the panic, and people were, you know, didn't know... We, we were watching YouTube videos on how to wash your, you know, how to treat treat your uh, produce like it, it was, they were surgical yeah. instruments for use inside the body. That was crazy. I never, I never yeah, cleaned we my groceries. I, yeah, I never did that. No, Me we neither. went to, we went to uh, New Orleans and they lifted the mask mandate. And yeah. then um, I got my nails done when I came back to Pasadena and I had to go next door. I was going to pick up some, some uh, cupcakes. And I forgot my mask. I forgot about the masking. Everybody had masks walking down the street in Pasadena. Outdoors. And I and I walked in and she's like, you have to put a mask. And I go, I can't. My hand, my nails are wet. I can't do it. And I said, ah, forget it. I don't want these stupid cupcakes. And I walked <laughs> out. I was just like, when is this going to stop? This will forever go down as the cupcake incident. <laughs> like, so, yeah, so. I know. I was just thinking whether or not you got cupcakes at the end of the day because I probably would have. No, I, was, I, don't, getting cupcake I didn't need the calories. Did you get the bun cake or not? That's really funny. Well, listen, it was a, a pleasure to talk with you. Uh, and I, I feel like I learned why well, I, I, there was a lot of information you gave me at the beginning about um, infectious disease and, and uh, you know, dormant infection in donors. I, I didn't realize there was so much of that. I, I always thought of the, the big three, as you say, and CMV. Um, but that's fascinating. That's an interesting way to see a lot of disease that you might not see in any other context in this state anyway. Although I used to see a lot of worms of all types, not strongyloides, because that really is African, right? But from Central and South America, a lot of different kind of worms, including uh, Chinese liver flukes and uh, and uh, oh wow, that's these, uh, all kinds of all, all kinds of ascaris. And Ugh. I remember I saw something in a common bile duct camera with that worm was. But you know we use these anti 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 helminthic medications like crazy. They were gigantic breakthroughs. You know they were a huge deal. And now yeah, you can't say the word on YouTube. <laughs> <laughs> so, uh, Doctor Peter, so, do you have you a quick have a, minute? Uh, Dr. Peter, oh, wait, uh, this wait, is wait, Caleb wait, in the control wait, yeah. room. I actually have a quick question. Um, so I, I have severe Crohn's disease. And so part of that you had mentioned earlier about immunocompromised people that you had noticed that mm -hmm. strangely enough, they didn't seem to be getting COVID in higher numbers, right? As COVID was no, starting, no, no, like, they didn't get, they didn't get, no, no, Caleb, they didn't get the cytokine storm. Oh, they didn't get the cytokine get storm. The cytokine mm -hmm. Okay, yeah, that makes more sense because I was I, co confused. I've yeah. been very confused as yeah, to yeah. how I never caught COVID because I was literally in the hospital in the end of February in 2020 when nobody really knew what was going on. They weren't doing any protection. I went into the hospital, severe symptoms. I spent almost like eight or nine days there. I went in there. They weren't doing anything on, on by the Humira. time I came out on, on Humira, Humira for 10 years and steroids. On Humira. Yeah. And steroids. I did that, had surgeries. Then I went back six months later and I never got never caught COVID. And I feel like I would have been very highly likely. Have you noticed anything that's that could explain why? I was literally in the middle of Los Angeles as well. I mean, there are two explanations. One is that you might have gotten it and not known it. Um, because again, you were on these anti-inflammatories. So like your your inflammatory system was kind of dampened. The second explanation is um 
and then the not knowing part is that they didn't test you. Um, or because in the beginning, nobody was, you know, getting the test was like gold, you know, you kind of had to be an NBA right. uh, player or like Tom Hanks or something to get it. But now, <laughs> you know, it's everywhere. And the second reason is, you know, what we, we know from the, and the second reason is just that you were lucky or killed. Um, Locked, we know yeah, from locked. there's a, a good Swedish study where they looked like the entire population, Swedish and Scandinavia, they have like all these population databases. They looked at Crohn's in particular, and like what Dr. Drew was saying, the people with Crohn's ended, tended to get infected more, like they went to hospital, but they, they didn't die more than the general population, which again suggests that even though your sy immune system is compromised because of the medicines you take, that bounces right. off with like not having that cytokine storm. Right, right. Okay, that that makes a lot of sense to me. I was just I was shocked whenever I I actually moved out of Los Angeles a few months ago and I never caught it. I got tested for it many times and I seemed like I was the perfect candidate to get it of being right there lucky. at ground zero, you know. Lucky, I guess. I think, I think it'll be interesting yeah. for you to check your antibodies like Dr. Drew and see if yeah, you yeah. got it That's and didn't know it. God I should do that. He yeah. gave you enough problems, Caleb. Yeah. <laughs> it's like he's uh, done for the year. <laughs> I know. Yeah, no like, more. Leave that guy alone. He, he, had a, he had a psoas muscle abscess that he was walking around with for, for, oh, no. for three months that they finally oh. identified. Yeah, it was bad. I couldn't even lift my leg up all of a yeah. sudden, and it was it was it was bad. And that was after on Humera for ten years, and as immunocompromised as I could possibly be, and I somehow made it out without it and then the vaccines lucky. came out and yeah Unlucky lucky with the <laughs> right. lucky with the COVID. Yeah. <laughs> exactly have COVID. <laughs> there you go all right well thank you caleb uh, and i want to take a couple calls off clubhouse but first i want to let uh, dr chin hong go thank you so much uh, we will follow you at pch on twitter pch capital letters pch underscore sf pch underscore sf you have to you have to tell us what that means what is, is pacific coast highway san francisco Pacific Coast Highway, Peter oh. Chin Hong. You can have lots of weights for PCH. <laughs> uh, oh, PCH. There yeah, you go. That's his name. I love his it. I didn't, I didn't even. I'm too. And he's uh, in San Francisco. So. I got the San Francisco part. I didn't, I didn't, <laughs> uh, I didn't notice his name, uh, which is foolish on my part. But uh, so anyway, uh, thank you for spending some time with us. And uh, I hope if uh, a new you know, stuff comes up, you'll be available to kind of help us make sense of it. We appreciate it. And and if we get censored on YouTube, we're also on Rumble, Facebook, and Twitter. And, and you can always get me cupcakes now. too. Yeah. Next time okay. we can hopefully I will bring you cupcakes next time. Get me some cupcakes. There <laughs> yes, you go. That would That'd be, be nice. That'd be great. If you're down here, let fabulous. us know. Please. And we're gonna show a picture of Drew's black eye pretty soon. So oh, is that right? I oh, no. found a picture on the Mike Corona show. Fantastic. <laughs> All right, let me uh, take a couple calls Oops. here. Uh, thank you guys. Some people have been waiting for quite some time and I wanna to try to get to them uh, very, very quickly. These, uh, we have a few more minutes for calls uh, and we appreciate you guys hanging out on, on uh, Clubhouse with us, as well as those of you on the restream. I'm watching that carefully. I have clicked on somebody here who may have... We had to weed out the week. We want the real strong calls. I wonder if this uh, M Homestead has left the building. Okay, if you're on Clubhouse, wake up. We're over here. We're ready. We're ready for you. Okay, I'm going to try another one that seems to have been around for a while. I think we got demonetized on YouTube, so that's probably why we're not getting any more strikes. <laughs> Maybe. Hi, Jordan. Hi there. Can you hear me all right? We got you. Okay, awesome. 
Uh, my question has to do with, I guess, natural immunity and the vaccines and this sort of hybrid immunity mm-hmm. you and Dr. Peter were talking about. Mm-hmm. So I'm just wondering if you're familiar with the idea of original antigenic sin at all. It's also called like imprinting or the Hoskins effect. Yeah, I looked it up once and uh, did not spend a lot of time with it, but go, go ahead. Okay, so I've just got a study in front of me here that's showing that for breakthrough infections, only about 26% of people are developing the anti-nucleocapsid antibodies mm-hmm. compared to about 82% of people who are unvaccinated. So I'm just wondering if there might be some um, effects on whether you get the vax first or infection first. Right. So, so you're making a case that if you want to get hybrid immunity, you should get the infection first so you get all those nucleocapsid responses as well. I, you know, It seems to me, yeah. Yeah, I... I, he said he didn't know when I asked him that because I kind of asked that question. He said, "Well, probably the same," but but uh, it's it, that's fascinating to me. Uh, I'm wondering how long after the natural infection were people being studied? Because I'm wondering if they had it and just it wore out and some you know sixty percent are going to have a drop in their nucleocapsid antibodies. Uh, for the breakthrough infections, it says it was within. Median of 30 days. Okay, so the breakthrough, and those are the ones that had the lower capsid, nuclear capsid antibodies? That's right, only 26%. I, I don't have an opinion. I'm not sure he would have an opinion, but uh, I appreciate you bringing that up. This, that, this is the kind of thing that we need to be thinking about. I, I don't know. Think about it. Uh, let's say that's accurate. I still don't know that it's worth the risk of getting the natural infection first, right? If we're going to get hybrid in, in, infection anyway uh i'm not sure if that's worth it um starla is that you you suddenly came in here and kicked jordan out starla you're there you are yeah i'm not how i made it up here but i do have a question so i also have um a couple of autoimmune issues and right now i'm just treating it with prednisone i've been exposed multiple times Mm -hmm. um to covid and i've not actually come down with it mm-hmm. um we've even done the nose swabs and is there something with the prednisone and even when i was taking some of the uh, rheumatoid medications that yeah. may be preventing me so so if you heard what uh dr chin hong was just saying to uh caleb who is a somebody immunosuppressed with crohn's it, it doesn't appear to in fact they seem to maybe get infected at a little higher rate they just don't get the complications at a higher rate or it's similar to or maybe less than what you would get uh, if you were just somebody without immuno- immunosuppressants on board, which makes perfect sense. I mean, we're giving people immunosuppressants once they get sick to prevent the cytokine activation and the inflammatory and plus component he's on of disease. steroids all the time. He, he, so he stays with the steroid, but he didn't get infected is the thing. And yeah. so Starla's asking, you know, is, you know, why not, is it affecting my ability to get infected? And the answer is nobody has really studied that. It, we don't believe that to be so. We would just, and, but some people have Im- innate resistance to the infection too. I mean, you could be one of those people, right? Like me. Right. Susan seems to be one of those people. But the we we are at least from the standpoint of what PCH was just saying. What I've been thinking is it's really the complications that are reduced, not the whether you get infected or not, and also not whether or not you have significant illness. It's really whether you get the the really serious piece of the illness, which is the inflammatory piece. Uh, okay, guys, I have to kind of wrap things up here. Uh, time is up. We appreciate it very much. We have some very interesting things coming up. Dr. Antonio Damasio coming in here next Monday. That is a big deal. Is it? Oh, my goodness. He is one oh, of the... By the way, Michelle Poe is killing it. Yep. 
Yep. She's the master booker of doctors. And she just said she thought she did a pretty good job today. She, she, yes, this was good today. So I'm giving her a shout out. And thanks, Caleb, for producing. Thank you, Michelle, for booking. But Dr. Damasio is one probably the, I, I, you know, he is the leader in neuroscience and psychiatry and thinking about things like consciousness and feeling and self. And he is really... We've had Dr. Alan Shore in here, who's one of the leaders in interpersonal neurobiology. Dr. Damasio is the international sort of superstar in this space. He, Somebody he wrote, just said, Dr. Kelly. He wrote an important book called uh, Descartes' Error. Er Descartes Error. He also wrote uh, The Feeling of What Happened, something like that, or The Feeling of the, uh, the Self Comes to Mind. Self Comes to Mind, I think is the other one. And I think he wrote even another one called Brain on Fire or something. Maybe that was not him. But Descartes' Error is sort of his classic uh, book. And he has a new one out uh, where he has really reformulated the importance of feeling so-called, what feelings are. And so we're going to get deep into the conversation about feelings, emotions, where they come from, how they're nice. regulated, how they're perceived, and that relationship of that with consciousness. It's going to be a bit of a heady discussion, I suspect. But that'll be Monday at what time, everybody? Next week. Monday at what time? No, Tuesday. Wait. Monday at... Wait, you're talking about next week. We don't I'm get back till Monday. It's Tuesday. It's Monday. We have another guest on Tuesday I'll tell you about in a second. Ooh. Um, so, okay, 4 p.m. So Pacific. Be hopeful that our... 4 p.m. Pacific on Monday. And All right. Hopefully our flight will make it back. Right. Right. And then Tuesday... Um, let's see. We had somebody then too, did we not? Or is that... Because I'm leaving. We're not doing anything Tuesday. No, Tuesday. We might have to move that guy a day if we have. Oh, you're leaving that day. But we're going to be here till Wednesday and then back on Monday. And John, Drew will be out of town for a week. So. Okay, so we're doing something so again. you guys can catch up on your last episodes. Are you saying we're doing something tomorrow, right? Yes. That is with Dax Holt. Dax Holt yeah. and his buddy from their, their podcast right. that you are on. Yes. Very fun guy. I can't remember for years. his name though. Used to see him on TMZ. He was the guy holding up the this disgraceful picture. He was a back. nice guy at TMZ. Yes, he was. Although, and then we have a lot of your mom's house fans here. I just want to say hi. Great on YouTube. Excellent. Probably I don't know. Do we have a little clip, Caleb? Oh, I'm oh I'm going to play that at the end. I have it lined <laughs> up after the disclaimer. <laughs> Honor my degree. I don't know what that means. What does that mean? Stay uh, tuned for the latest uh, episode on After Dark. All right. I'm just looking at your, your comments here on the restream to see if there's anything else. I think we're not. Uh, there was a lot of call to get uh, Robert Paul Champagne in here, which I, I suggested something like that over to the powers that be at your mom's house. I'm not sure that's going to happen. It's kind of their gig. So. That and uh, he sort of used for the live shows. So I uh, oh, begged okay. on some stuff there. Uh, thank you to the folks. They're over. afraid we'll leak out too much information. <laughs> thank for the guys over at uh, Clubhouse. We'll be back there again. Uh, probably Great calls at Clubhouse. Thanks, everybody. Probably tomorrow. Thank you for hanging in there. And then everyone uh, on all the other streaming sites, we appreciate you guys being here. And we will be back tomorrow at 4 o'clock, 4.15, something like that, Pacific with uh, Dax Holt. And then Monday with Dr. Antonio Damasio. We'll see you then. Ask Dr. Drew is produced by Caleb Nation and Susan Pinsky. As a reminder, the discussions here are not a substitute for medical care, diagnosis, or treatment. This show is intended for educational and informational purposes only. I am a licensed physician, but I am not a replacement for your personal doctor, and I am not practicing medicine here. Always remember that our understanding of medicine and science is constantly evolving. 
Though my opinion is based on the information that is available to me today, some of the contents of this show could be outdated in the future. Be sure to check with trusted resources in case any of the information has been updated since this was published. If you or someone you know is in immediate danger, don't call me, call 911. If you're feeling hopeless or suicidal, call the National Suicide Prevention Lifeline at 800 273 8255. You can find more of my recommended organizations and helpful resources at drdrew.com slash help. 